All right, the rest of us, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 1. So we get to continue our series this morning in this very important letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. Romans chapter 1. Let's read, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 18. And our primary text, you probably do not remember, but from three Sundays ago, we're looking at verses 16 and 17 specifically. And so uh, we're talking about the idea of being unashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul was unashamed of it. He was eager to preach it. We're talking about what may cause someone, what may tempt someone to be ashamed of the gospel. And then we're praying that God will work in us uh, a boldness and an eagerness to share the gospel with others as Paul had. Let's read in verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So let's just pause now, pray, and ask God to bless these verses. Father, we must pause now and we must ask for you to uh, quicken our minds through your spirit, give us an understanding of these words, to create in us an understanding of the gospel and an eagerness to share it and a lack of shame of it in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel and its truths. And so we pray for that now. Above all, we pray for your glory and the pronouncement of Jesus Christ as your eternal Son and the glory of his name among the nations. And so we just pray for this and I ask you would help me now uh, and gift me in this, these next few minutes. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. First of all, let's talk about this word gospel for a moment. Think about the gospel. When you join our church, we have you answer the question, what is the gospel? You have to actually write that out. When you think about the gospel, don't first and foremost think about what we call the four gospels. Okay? Um, Those contain the fuel of the gospel. Those contain some of the facts of the gospel. But the gospel itself is a message. 
As a matter of fact, we'll look at a verse later on this morning where Paul refers to the gospel as the word or the logos, the message of Christ Jesus himself. Paul said earlier in chapter 1, it is the gospel concerning the Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God a power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a message about what God has done through His Son, Jesus, in order to bring salvation to the world. It is the message of the eternal Son of God becoming a man and uh, living a righteous and perfect life and then dying in the place of sinners on the cross, being buried but risen again on the third day. It is that proclamation of what God has done through His Son. So we're talking about not being ashamed of the gospel. We're, we're talking about not being ashamed of the gospel message concerning the Son of God. Okay? It contains words and phrases and even paragraphs at times, depending on how much you expand upon it. That is what the gospel is. And Paul's intention was eventually to get to Rome to meet them in person, and to preach the gospel to them. And he says he was eager to do so. In verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then notice how this flows along. If you've got a Bible that kind of separates verses 15 and 16, that's fine. Mine does. It has the, the uh, heading there, the righteous shall live by faith. But, but don't let that throw you off. That Paul, when he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, begins verse 16 then with the word for. He's building on what he just said. I'm eager to preach the gospel in Rome for it is the power of God for, of, uh, for salvation to everyone who believes. Then verse 17 again, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In verse 18, again, another connection to everything he's saying. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So these are all connected verses and ideas. And I like to view these verses kind of as a bridge from the, the introduction to this letter that we looked at in those first, you know, 13, 14 verses and what the whole rest of the letter is going to talk about. Because actually in verse 16, he's giving the main themes of the rest of the letter, right? The gospel, the power of God for salvation, believing, the righteousness of God, the righteous shall live by faith. These are all things that will be unpacked later in this letter. And so this is kind of that transitionary uh, bridge between the introduction and the body of the letter. Now, Paul says he was, I am not ashamed, I'm eager to preach it, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we asked the question last time, well, why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? I mean, why would that be the case? Well, I'll tell you this. In this room, if you were all just talking after the service about the gospel, I guarantee you that virtually no one in this context would be ashamed of the gospel. When you're among believers, you're not ashamed of the gospel. 
because we all believe the gospel. We're here, the most of us, because we have come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We actually celebrate it. We read about it. We preach about it. We sing about it every week. We love the gospel. So I'm not going to be ashamed to stand here before you and preach it or even feel tempted to be ashamed of it. And you're not going to be ashamed to talk about it amongst yourselves. But the gospel is designed by God not just to be kept in the confines of our corporate worship or small groups or Bible studies. It is a message that God wants proclaimed to the nations. To proclaim to those who have never heard it and to those who do not believe it. The gospel message is designed by God to be proclaimed to others. And it's in that proclamation of the gospel to people who do not know it or do not believe it that the temptation to be ashamed of it will come. And although, and we listed a few of them last time, there could be many reasons why we don't, could become ashamed of the gospel, the, probably the number one reason or number one heading would be the fear of man. That is this, that you are going to be afraid of how they'll respond to it. How you'll look in their eyes. How they will respond to this message. And the main reason, I think, in our present culture now, in the day and age in which we live in the United States, in 2022, I think we could be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because it's, the, the culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards it. Increasingly hostile towards it. Understand, friends, that we have transitioned now in the United States from being a Christianized society. I'm not saying everybody was Christian. I'm saying, though, that Christianity was the predominant religion. That even those of our founding forefathers who were not truly Christian men tipped their hat to Christianity that our culture was designed and built upon Judeo-Christian principles and laws with the Word of God kind of in the mind as they're being developed. But that is changing rapidly, and it has been. We are in a post-post-Christian culture that is not only our people in our culture today, uh, not buying into Christian principles, but they're actually becoming hostile towards it. And especially when you begin saying what is right or wrong. And the gospel is very uh, offensive to the current cultural sensibilities. And whenever you're going to say something that's going to offend someone, oftentimes within us, and this is probably at some times, in some situations, a good thing, there's a hesitation to do it. But with the gospel, we cannot have that hesitation. Paul was a man who understood what it was to face hostility from the world 
because of his proclamation of the gospel and how offensive it was. As a matter of fact, we just finished up this morning reading his prison letters. Well, why was he imprisoned in Rome? Did he rob a convenience store? He preached the gospel, the offensive message concerning God's Son. And the world hated him for it. Now see, that is what, that is the world in which we're living. You're not going out any longer sharing the gospel with people who, you know, are kind of, you know, a little bit still steeped in Christianity or uh, are going to accept what you tell them about themselves or better yet, accept what the Bible tells them about themselves. These aren't people that are going to accept you saying that the only way for you to be saved, to be saved from sin, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, they're going to they're gonna have problems with you even talking about this salvation. Salvation from what? What do I need saved from? This God? Why do I need God's righteousness? They're not coming at it anymore with the same premise as what this nation used to have. And so therefore, we will increasingly, and this will happen, I think, for the churches that are just doing what we're doing this morning. Like we open the Bible and we read the Bible and whatever it says, we believe. And whatever it tells us to do or not to do, we, by the grace of God, try to put that into effect in our lives. And whatever the Bible tells us is sin, we just say it's sin. And we avoid it. And the culture is going to become increasingly hostile to this. And that could create within us this inner resistance, fear, or shame of the message. And we could become tempted to become quiet about it. And we could lose our eagerness to share it because it's no longer going to be easy to share the gospel. It's, it's no longer going to be cheap to share the gospel. It's going to be very expensive for you. So we need to know why Paul was willing to pay the price to share the gospel. What drove him to be so eager to share the gospel why was he so unashamed of this no matter the cost? Do you see where I'm headed with this? We've got to build into this and understand where he's coming from. We talked about the fact, and you notice these are all connected. Remember, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. That right there is a tremendously offensive statement. It causes offense. God's wrath is being revealed right now. There is a God who has wrath, who is angry, as the psalmist says, with the wicked every day. God before whom everyone must stand and give an account and it is his righteous standard that is going to be the standard set forth for their lives. That is an offensive message. 
A God who has wrath against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But that's where the gospel begins, isn't it? Take note of that very clearly. When, when Paul is talking about the gospel, he doesn't somehow bypass this wrath of God or the sin of man that evokes the wrath of God. He doesn't bypass it, does he? He doesn't say, this is kind of offensive. Let's see if I can soft pedal this. What he actually does, beginning in verse 18, and running all the way through, friends, chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, all the way down to verse 20, is he explains that every single one of us are under God's wrath by nature, that we are all sinners, that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, and that we need a Savior. He goes out of his way to teach about the nature of sin. As we'll see from chapter 3, we're totally depraved. In other words, that means that from, the, from head to toe, and the way he illustrates this using scriptures is so wonderful, that every part of man from head to toe has been corrupted by sin. No part of us that isn't af- affected by it. And friends, that is a message that is hostile to the world. The gospel begins with explaining that there is a God who is righteous and out of his righteousness comes wrath and the wrath comes because people have sinned and are sinning against him and that wrath is being revealed. That's where it begins. Because we are sinners. Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 7, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus comes into the world, the most loving man, the most kind man that has ever lived. And the world murdered him. Why, he says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So if the gospel begins with the fact that the works of human beings, all of us together, are evil, then how do you think the world will respond to us? It's so offensive. This message is becoming increasingly unpopular in present culture, especially because standards of righteousness and morality have been changed now or are changing. We all saw the slap heard around the world last week when Will Smith got up on stage at the Oscars. The only time I've ever watched any part of the Oscars or care about him at all is when he walks on stage and slaps Chris Rock, the host, across the face. If you haven't seen that, you're living under a rock or you have no (laughs) communication. If you're puzzled, like I haven't heard of this, I don't know where you're existing right now. Interestingly, and let me use that couple, Will and Jada Smith, as an example to illustrate what I'm talking about, about this cultural change in morality. They have what's called an open marriage, and they've been very open about this. That is, they can each see other people as much as they want. We, we know what that is. And I watched a portion of something that came out a few years ago with Will and Jada. She, I guess, has her own little talk show or something. And and they were talking about her first affair 
that she had with her son's friend. And this was found out, and of course it was kind of a big deal because at that point they didn't, from my understanding of the story, didn't have this open marriage arrangement. And he was joking on there and he said, you know, when I, when I first, uh, or he goes, now I, we're sitting here and the cameras are here and I feel like one of the politicians whose spouse has been caught in a great transgression and they're up there kind of apologizing for it and I'm standing with you or whatever. And she chuckled and she said, well, you know, I see how you could see it that way, but understand, I don't view what I did as a transgression. That's the culture we're living in. We're a couple like that. He can do what he did even. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, live in such an immoral life as that and yet be viewed as this cultural icon, a hero. He can get up at the end. He slaps that man across the face on national television and about 30 minutes later gets up to accept his Academy Award and everybody's standing ovation for him. It's all going, it's all changing here now and we have to just accept that because there's no changing it back. What you're going to see in Romans chapter 1 is that the, the current of sin, the flow of sin is always progressive. It, go, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And when you have a nation like ours, by which we have all the indicators that it is now under the wrath of God and has been turned over to a debased mind filled with all manner of unrighteousness to do things which should not be done and that continues and spreads, then they will become more and more hostile to our mention of sin. Our current trying to teach what sin even is. As a matter of fact, look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Paul says, and we're going to spend, we'll, we'll spend a number of weeks, a couple of weeks at least, just in these verses, like detailed expounding on them. But look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That's homosexuality. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Again, another reference to homosexuality. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Okay. Now you share that. Talk about homosexuality in our current culture and say these are shameless acts. This is a grievous error. As a matter of fact, this is evidence that God has turned the nation over to a debased mind. And see how that flies in our current culture. But you see, you have to begin here. Not only that, listen to this, verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. 
slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know, catch this, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Think about that. Sins in this list like gossip. Yeah, what's a big deal? Covetousness. Disobedience to parents. And Paul says that those who practice such things deserve to die. Sin, the wages of sin is death. That is unpopular, isn't it? But that's where the gospel begins. Without this bad news, there's no good news, is there? The good news isn't as good. But a faithful presentation of the gospel must begin with the fact that you and I are sinners and therefore we need to be saved. A couple of weeks ago I shared the account of one hymn story where... uh, they wanted to change the lyrics to In Christ Alone in the PCUSA hymn, uh, hymn book to, you know, on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. They don't want to sing about the wrath of God. Let me give you another hymn story. And this one is about the hymn Amazing Grace. Of course, that is the most well-known hymn of all time, right? John Newton wrote it in the 1700s and Uh, Of course, the story of John Newton is interesting. It ties in here. I'll give a little synopsis of it. His mom was a Christian, raised him as a Christian, but she died when he was a relatively teenager, I think. And uh, and his dad was the the captain of a ship, and he didn't know his dad very well, but he took on that trade and went into the world, went into sin and debauchery and drunkenness and all sorts of things, did some things that he said, man, I, I read in one of his writings, he said, I hope they're buried in eternal silence. I never want them to be brought up again. And he became the captain of a slave trading ship. And was in that, really, for a number of, of years, even into the first few years of him being saved. He didn't immediately make the connection of the wrongness of what he was doing. Now, later on in, in his Christian experience, as he's reflecting on the slave trade itself, he thought, this is horrible. He wrote a paper on it about the horrors of the slave trade that was passed out to all the parliament there in England. And William Wilberforce, of course, had been battling against the slave trade for many years. And that paper and William Wilberforce and John Newton's testimony in part were all used to eventually, uh, I think 1807 was the year, abolish the slave trade in uh, in England. Don't quote me on my years, but I think that stands out in my mind. But anyway, uh, that rectified itself, and of course he saw how wrong it was. But I came across this, and this was actually posted on church website, and it was part of an article about this uh, song, Amazing Grace. He said, we used, oh, this is a, a, a pastor here speaking. He said, we used to sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But too many people objected to calling themselves wretched, wretches. It does sound negative, doesn't it? The article goes on to say, so his congregation uses a, ver- a version that goes, quote, that saved and set me free from the hymnal of hymns of truth and light. There's irony there. 
Margaret Tucker, the hymnal's co-editor, said, Saved a wretch like me, and amazing grace was amended, catch this, because the words detail an experience specific to Newton. Altering it to saved and set me free gives it a general meaning that it could apply to anyone, she said. I know that sometimes we all feel like a wretch about some things, but in general, it's not a term that most of us would apply to ourselves. Well, that's a church hymnal co-editor. Now, when he, she said that it was an experience specific to Newton, in other words, as John Newton's, this is what they're saying, as John Newton's writing this song, he's, he's only thinking about the fact that he himself was a wretch because he was the captain of a slave ship. And I know that to be the case because I came across this blog post by an anonymous uh, blogger called Miss Cranky Pants, something I would never naturally read. But this is what she said. <laughs> A little research reveals that the author, John Newton, may well have merited the designated wretch as he was a slave trader who repudiated his childhood faith and led a debauched personal life. And she goes on in this uh, blog post to explain that she, of course, is not a wretch. But by her standards, of course, if you were a slave trader, why, you, you merit the designation of wretch. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul in this very letter in chapter 7 in verse 24 says this, speaking of himself in the present tense, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, what Paul has already explained in chapters, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is that, no, you have to understand, we're all wretches. We're all sinners under the wrath of God, deserving God's wrath and unable to save ourselves unwilling to save ourselves, frankly. That we all, Jew, Gentile, everyone, deserves the designation of a wretched man or a wretched woman. See, in her understanding of the gospel, this Miss Cranky Pants, her understanding of the gospel is that it may be the power of God for salvation, but actually she doesn't need that much power from God, she's not that bad, right? I mean, John Newton, now there's a guy that needs all the power of God, but me, maybe just a little. And the righteousness of God, well, maybe a little to supplement my own righteousness. But friends, no matter what she believes, it isn't the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. We are all sinners. And you know this was interesting too. I thought I would share this with you. This comes from probably my favorite book that I own is the book Letters of John Newton. And in it, he is writing to this person who's struggling, I think, with their own sinfulness. And he was well known for his letters. So somebody would 
write to him and he would respond back to them and, and praise be to God, all his, most of his letters were kept and he was very warm and pastoral. And he says this in, in his letter, yet alas, I must still charge myself with a great want of watchfulness and diligence. Now this is a number of years into his salvation. The enemy cannot destroy my foundation, but he spreads many nets for my feet to weaken me and to interrupt my peace. And to my shame, I must confess, he too often prevails. The Lord in great mercy preserves me from such sins as would openly dishonor my profession and a mercy I desire to esteem it for I can infer from my heart what my life would be if I were left to myself. I hate sin. I long to be delivered from it, but it is still in me and works in me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me, you see? You know what? That is the word, those are the words in the testimony of a man who has been walking with the Lord for a number of years who is not growing in his own self-appreciation. Because true Christianity is you walk with God and you walk with Christ and the Spirit works in you through the Word of God. You don't become more content with yourself. You don't become more prone to say, you know, I just don't like singing about how I'm a wretch. You come to more of an understanding of how wretched you truly are apart from Christ. When you're walking with Jesus and experiencing His righteousness and seeing His righteousness in Scripture, you're going to see, unfortunately, more of your own unrighteousness. But we don't shy away from that because what does that do, friends? That actually makes us appreciate Jesus so much more. Makes us so much grateful for the power of God. The transforming power of God that comes to us via the gospel message. It changes our hearts even now. Changes our lives and puts us on new direction. It makes us more grateful for the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel. Meaning this, His righteousness granted to you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you see your own natural unrighteousness and you're still your propensity to sin because of your indwelling sin, because of your flesh, it makes you so much more grateful for a righteousness that comes to you through the gospel, you see. That it isn't your righteousness by which you stand before God anyway. That isn't even contributing to your relationship with Him. It is the righteousness of Christ that comes from Him when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul will say, the righteous shall live by faith. You don't gain the righteousness you need. You're given the righteousness you need. And the righteousness you need is in Jesus Christ. God gives you the power. The power is God's that comes to you through the gospel. This is why he is not ashamed of the gospel. This is the means by which God saves people. 
It's where the power for salvation comes. It's the channel through which it comes. When lost sinners hear the good news, God through His Spirit who has already convicted them of their sin now brings in the gospel of salvation and change and forgiveness and power for new living and grants to them salvation. And I think that Paul was so unashamed of the gospel because as we looked at a number of weeks ago, he had experienced it personally in his life. When Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He's thinking first and foremost of himself as one who's experienced this power. One who possesses this righteousness and the joy of it. And as he will quote from David in just a few chapters, the blessedness of the man who God forgives and doesn't count his sins against him, the happiness of it. And so he says, this is it. This is the only way people can be saved. I've experienced it. I'm seeing others experience it. Therefore, I'm not ashamed of it and I'm eager to preach it because I want to see God save people through it. Friends, have you experienced the power of God unto salvation in your own heart and life? When you read this verse, do you know what he's talking about? Do you know what it is? You say, yeah, I've experienced that. I understand that not everybody has dramatic, radical conversion stories where this truth becomes a reality for them experientially in a moment. But I remember very clearly the day for me that the gospel became the power of God unto salvation. To me anyway. To me. And I believed. I was an absolute mess. I, like John Newton, had grown up under the influence of Christianity. And I, like John Newton, turned my back on it and went into the world and lived in debauchery and sin. Rebellion against God in the enjoyment of sin And I, through a series of events that God led me through, was brought to the point where I was miserable and I felt cursed before God. You see, even in my rejection of God, I knew He was real. Even in my rejection of Christ and the gospel, I knew it was real. Even in my rejection of the Bible, I knew it was real. And when my life had become such a mess that I thought, man, I'm cursed before God. There's nothing I can do about this. I know my own sin. I can't live like a Christian. As a matter of fact, I remember the time that I was truly saved, standing in my kitchen. I'm cleaning my kitchen. Powerful things happen when people clean their kitchens. (laughs) I'm here cleaning the kitchen and I'm thinking about all this and I'm thinking, I've made a mess of everything. I'm cursed before God. I can't live like a Christian. I know how Christians live. And I thought to myself, I love sin too much. I'm not going to pretend to be a Christian. And so I thought, well, I'll just eat, drink, and marry. And when I die, I'll deal with God. I'll make the mess out, best out of this life that I can. And it was in, the, in those moments I was thinking about the wrath of God. Wow, it was powerful in my heart. I kept thinking about those Old Testament passages that said, the anger of the Lord was kindled against so-and-so. 
I kept flowing through my mind. And I put myself as the object of that wrath. And I knew that I was in big trouble with God. And I remember thinking, what's the New Testament all about? I remember thinking it's about the gospel. I remember thinking, what was the gospel? And I thought, well, it meant good news. I remembered that. And I thought, well, what is the good news? And then it came to me as crystal clear as anything else I've ever thought. If Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you don't have to be cursed. And in that moment, through that gospel message, God's power invaded my heart and mind. I was saved. His eye diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon flamed with light. I experienced the gospel as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. That's why Paul could be so unashamed of it. He had experienced it. That is why in my best moments and at my best times when I don't let flesh prevail, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and I'm eager to preach it and share it because I know it's the power of God unto salvation and that if people are going to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. This is how God does it. Has it been the power of God for salvation to you? Paul will go on in Romans chapter 10. And explaining the absolute necessity of the preaching of the gospel to the lost. And he will say these encouraging words. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you have not experienced this. If you are not assured of this salvation. And the power of God in your life. Call on him now. That's the promise. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will not be put to shame. They will not be disappointed. They will experience all of this in their life. So I encourage you to do that even right now where you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the good news. Thank you for your kindness and mercy and love and grace to us in Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone in this room right now who is unassured of their salvation. We pray for your Spirit's power in the powerful gospel that they would believe. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.